Right. You there? Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome back to the Energy Flux Social Podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to be here and glad you're listening in, either live and in person or to the post event recording on the Energy Flux podcast page. And I'm very happy to be joined by my first special guest, a fellow lifelong energy journalist and ex colleague of mine, Rachel Parks, who is the editor of Gas Matters, a weekly features publication provided by energy consultancy Gas Strategies. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, Serv. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Rachel, give us a quick rundown. Tell us who you are, what you do, and what you've been doing in energy all these years. Sure. Okay. Um, I've been an energy journalist for about 13 years. Um, I started out as a rookie reporter at a now defunct um, energy website called New Energy Focus. There I was covering um, developments in UK renewables, which inevitably just meant wind. <laughs> lots, lots and lots of wind with some wave and tidal. Uh, and then I was a freelancer for many years covering energy markets more generally, covered natural gas and power, um, uh, renewables and um, a little bit of sort of facilities management. Um, and then in 2017, I became editor of Gas Matters, which is a weekly features title for um, published by Gas Strategies. And it's for the natural gas industry. And um, I should probably mention that I'm speaking here in a personal capacity tweets on my own, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> cool. Um, all right. Um, well, 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 we'll dig into, I'm sure that the topics you've been covering in Gas Matters will come through as we sort of talk through some of the issues um, that are on the schedule today. Uh, but before we get started, um, just a quick reminder, this is an interactive podcast. I think some people uh, might be listening in who haven't done this before. Um, essentially, you know, this, this whole app allows you to call in and I'm hoping that people will feel animated enough to do that and, and share their thoughts with what we've been talking about. And um, that's really the whole point of the show. It's not just a one-way broadcast, but, you know, it's uh, an opportunity to hear a, a wide selection of views about the kind of very pressing and urgent topics that really affect every one of us that we'll be talking about soon. Um, so if you want to call in, I think there's a button... I think it might be a telephone shaped button. You press it and it kind of alerts me. There's a like a list of callers and you can, and then I'll come to callers and answer them one by one in the order that they came in and we'll have a chat and and um, we'll just hear what, what everybody has to say. If you work in the energy industry or you're professionally involved in the topics we're talking about, then feel free to state your affiliation and um, and then just kind of go ahead or just, or just kind of... Uh, just let us know what you have to think anyway. So on to today's topic, why energy market volatility is here to stay. So if you follow the mainstream energy and climate debates, then you're probably well aware that oil and gas investment needs to fall very quickly to get the world onto a pathway that's aligned with the objectives of the 2015 Paris Accord, um, which are, of course, you know, trying to stop global heating going beyond two degrees centigrade or preferably 1.5 degrees. Um, and that, yeah, essentially investment in oil and gas exploration has to kind of come to a screeching halt as of yesterday or many years ago. 
Um, now, I wrote in Energy Flux newsletter last week about two very interesting and diametrically opposed papers. And these publications threw into sharp relief just how irreconcilable the stability of energy markets and mitigating climate change can be. And um, they're, they're arguing two kind of polar opposite positions. On the one hand, investment in upstream oil and gas uh, is sort of well beyond levels that are deemed safe from a sort of planetary perspective in terms of uh, preserving ecosystems and keeping the planets habitable for human beings. But at the same time, we're actually hearing increasingly urgent warnings that oil and gas investment is way too low. And um, this investment crisis that's brewing threatens to spill over into becoming a genuine energy supply crisis. And on the current trajectory, uh, this crisis, you know, it, it will come, it will manifest itself years down the line because of the lead time on on upstream investments, but it could make the extreme market events of late 2021, which we're witnessing particularly here in Europe, look like a, a mere blip in hindsight. Um, so this warning, which I covered in the newsletter, came from an organization called the International Energy Forum. And they warned that uh, the, the, the industry is facing unprecedented uncertainty around the energy transition, and uh, these uncertainties are driving a trend of preemptive underinvestment in oil and gas supply, and that this threatens to exacerbate the wild price swings. So the IEF says that we need to see a rise of more than 50% in annual upstream capital expenditure um, between 2021 and 2030 to hit $525 billion a year by the end of the decade. And cumulatively, over that period, we need to see $4.7 trillion of investment to prevent a supply shortfall, um, even if demand for hydrocarbons kind of slows towards a plateau. And this $4.7 trillion figure this decade from the IEF, it's, it's less than what was invested into the upstream sector over the last decade. Um, so it, in theory, it should be achievable, but the IEF says that there's really no reason to be particularly confident about the actual capital materialising because there are so many risks on the horizon for investors. These include very divergent long-term demand outlooks, um, which we can look into, we can dig into in the conversation, and external pressures on investment from policymakers and shareholders. Um, you know, we, we're not supposed to be investing in oil and gas um, from a climate, climate perspective and institutional investors like pension funds are coming under a great deal of pressure to divest their fossil fuel holdings rather than holding on and doubling down. Uh, so the IEF says that this new environment is impacting on decision making, leading to structural underinvestment as companies look across what they describe as a, an obstacle ridden landscape. Uh, to, to, to investments. Now, on the flip side, the other piece that I wrote about, I'll just summarize this briefly. Um, there was a, a piece in the conversation which uh, was written by an academic. Uh, let me call up his name. Hang on, bear with me. Uh, he's... <laughs> well, David Waltham is the um, professor of geophysics at the Royal Holloway University of London. Um, and uh, he is now at a point where he's, you know, he formerly was. Um, teaching future geologists about how best to extract oil and gas. Um, 
But um, his argument is that basically investment in fossil fuels needs to have stopped um, yesterday, and he's calling for an outright ban on new oil and gas fields. Um, and the sort of crux of his argument is that it, it could be in the financial interest of fossil fuel companies because, um, it, I mean, reading between the lines, I mean, I think he's saying that it will um, protect them from stranded assets in the future. Have I have I got that summarised that about right? That is spot on. Yeah, yeah. So so he's he's talking about yeah saving on exploration costs and boosting the value of existing oil and gas fields by not producing any more of the stuff. Um, and I think he presented as a kind of counterfactual where uh, like continually adding new capacity to extract fossil fuels will lead to a price collapse when actions to combat climate change hopefully lead to greatly reduced fossil fuel demand. Um, and I think that the operative word in that sentence is hopefully, because it's on a bit of a wing and a prayer, this idea that, well, yeah, we will, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stop bringing on stream new supplies and just hope there'll be this lovely, natural, um, graceful dovetailing of demands lowering with, with the supply curve. And, and I, I think that, that, that that's, that's quite a kind of bold hope to, uh, upon which the base sort of, um, a, a policy where there's so much at stake because, um, you know, it, I think it supply and demand are really just so difficult to match up at the best of times. But there's just so much divergence in views over where hydrocarbon demands are going because there are so many conflicting drivers about, um, you know, decarbonisation and like the, the ramp up in electric vehicles. But then there's lots of reason to kind of doubt that these things will actually come to pass. Um, and, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I was sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, I mean, um, one of the issues with this whole discourse is that nobody seems particularly keen to talk about supply and demand at the same time. Um, it's either we, we seem to find ourselves on one side talking about um, how supply has to be curtailed immediately um, or supply has to be increased immediately. Um, and then on the demand side, you know, I'm, I mean, in the fossil fuel industry, there is a lot of discussion about how really um, demand needs to be curtailed first, and we are we find ourselves in a bit of a chicken in a bit of a chicken and an egg situation. And it's um, yeah, I mean, not to mix my mess of metaphors, but uh, it's also a bit of a sort of you know standoff. Um, and nobody's <laughs> nobody a chicken, wants a chicken to chicken and egg standoff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, all the metaphors. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're right. And, and um, the, the thing I highlighted about these two publications that I put in the newsletter was, was what they both omitted. So um, David's, uh, David Waltham in his piece in The Conversation just made absolutely no mention of things like uh, the risks of you know, supply and demand being kind of quite severely mismatched and the really negative economic consequences that would all fall out of of that very very likely mismatch in um, in like in that undersupply of, of of fossil fuels and particularly in the developing world where people are very exposed to to, to, to fuel price spikes um, but at the same time the IEF reports didn't really kind of go into any depth about what 4.7 trillion dollars of investment into oil and gas means from an emissions perspective 
They make no mention of the word Paris. They they don't talk about carbon budgets. The word, the phrase stranded assets just doesn't appear in the report. So like they're, they're both very kind of um, incomplete portrayals of the picture. And, and so I look at these two and I think well, we need to have a kind of more mature dialogue around this about how do we address the kind of energy stability issues that are so utterly crucial to keeping 7.7 billion people fed and watered and sheltered every day and, and kind of mobile and in good health and at the same time not blow our carbon budgets and end up with a kind of four five six degree temperature rise this century yeah yeah and i think the other area where the IF, IEF report was lacking, at least there was a lack of clarity, was around um, the, the players that it's actually talking about. I mean, I think there's, there's definite, definitely an assumption that when it comes to supply, we're talking about the big IOCs, the oil majors, um, all of whom are, are public companies and are subject to all of the pressures that, you know, the financing pressures, the shareholder pressures, the political pressures that kind of outlined in this report. But what it, I mean, what we talk a lot about um, in Gas Matters is who walks into the space that's created when when those players start stepping back. So what are the NOCs doing? What are the state oil and gas companies going to do? How do they respond to um, to this, the the space that's been created in in this area? And also private equity, um, because private equity isn't. It doesn't necessarily work in the same way. Um, and, you know, you get these smaller, nimbler companies that are sort of more than happy to invest in oil and gas um, at various points in the cycle. So I, I think there was a lot missing from there that it definitely didn't tell the whole story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, so you've got this question that you just described around the, the nature of the investors who might make up the shortfall. Um, do, do you have kind of any feeling around the volume of capital that could be mobilized and from alternate sources, like from kind of the non-traditional, non-conventional fossil fuel investors, if there's this big um, kind of exodus of those who are more exposed to ESG metrics, uh, will there be enough money, essentially, that from people who are willing to invest where they're, where they're not? Or have you seen anything that might indicate that? Um, the short answer is no. Because the whole point, the whole point really, uh, and probably why the, this report is the way it is, is because um, both the NOCs and private equity move in much more mysterious ways. Um, and you don't have access necessarily to the same kind of information that you might have available on, you know, upcoming CapEx that um, the, you know, the traditional oil and gas companies have to, that, you know, they have to, make that kind of information available so no sorry i can't give a better answer on that but i think it does kind of speak to this wider no. point i think it does actually speak to this wider point actually about how oil and gas investment is going to become a lot more opaque than it used to be right because because yeah if you're listed then you have certain transparency requirements and that Absolutely, just becomes yeah. incompatible yeah. Yeah, so, um, I was really um, interested actually to, re to read in, in the um, in the report about um, how shale has uh, shifted that um, 
has shifted the, the sort of length of cycles. I mean, um, did you did you read a little? Did you read about that? Yeah. So the the, the shift towards short cycle investments is. I've written about this in Energy Flux, yeah, so, so because there's so much, the further out you look on the demand profile, the more divergent it becomes and the, the less certain you can be of the, whether we're going to be in this kind of wonderful decarbonized utopia or actually we're still going to be relying pretty much the same amount as we are today on, on fossil fuels. So if you can get a short cycle investment down, get it off and, um, and start, you know, kind of recouping that investment sooner rather than later, it makes a lot more sense than tying up you know, billions in a, a sort of five, six, seven year lead time project that will take you up towards 2030 when there are all these massive decarbonisation targets looming. So, yeah, little short cycle investments in US shale. And I've written about this about in Brazil as well as the Brazilian onshore oil space is really on fire right now because there are lots of old oil wells that can be repurposed with a very, very low capex workover and they can start producing double digit returns within 18 months of investment. And that's great if you're, if you're willing to invest in oil and gas, that's like a, the golden investment because you can do it before demand really starts to, in theory, deteriorate um, uh, further down the line. Right, so do you think that that's gonna be where like, the cap capital's gonna flow in future? It's less risky being in the, in the short term cycle? Yeah, and that's, that's probably where you'll see the private cap, the, the uh, private equity flow, right? Because those guys, they want a quick return. That's generally how private equity operates. They want an exit point. Um, but I think there's a really big question mark about, you know, are there enough sh short cycle investment opportunities to leverage the amount of production that's actually needed to meet demands over the next sort of five, six, seven, eight years? Um, if you kind of turn your back on deep water and like conventional plays that are, I don't know, kind of in very remote locations or in very challenging geology, then are you still going to see an undersupply? That's the big question. Sure, sure. I mean, um, the other thing that I, I, I would have liked to have maybe seen in this report is looking at how um, CCS investment affects things, because I mean, maybe you, you're going to have a review on CCS, I bet. But um, in a hypothetical situation where CCS is economically viable, do you think that that reduces the risk and does that change the investment profile? Well, this is <laughs> that, that's that's another one of these kind of golden scenarios, isn't it? Which I I, I don't know if it will materialise because. This this idea that we can kind of yeah just keep investing in oil and gas because it's okay because you know CCS will come along and make it bankable and make it compatible with Paris etc. I, I don't know many I don't know if any pension funds are investing in fossil fuels on on that basis with that enormous caveat mm. considering that really I don't think there's any operational CCS project that's not for enhanced oil recovery and that's not how CCS is is in theory going to be deployed to make oil and gas compatible with Paris. It's, it's more about point source capture. And you look at the point source capture projects like the Gorgon CCS project or the Gorgon LNG project in Australia, what a, what a catastrophic failure that is. Like I think Chevron's out there buying carbon credits in the market 
to make up for the shortfall yeah. of carbon that it didn't capture because it didn't manage to bury the stuff when it was all designed on to be this kind of the world's most effective CCS project. They completely failed. Yeah, so all of this really is not a vote of confidence in CCS at all. <laughs> no, I think until we see you know, proper point source projects working effectively, burying the carbon at a decent price and reliably, and capturing, you know, as sort of 90% or more of, of like through flows of, of, of CO2, then we haven't really got anything to talk about here, right? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, that the only, the investment is all flowing from really from the IOCs. I mean, partly that's, I think that's because they are well capitalized enough to do that. And also because they have a, you know, a direct interest in, in at least showing that they're doing that. Um, it's a, it's a demonstration, right? Um, uh, but I do think it's interesting that capital isn't necessarily being raised from other sources, which suggests that there's not a great deal of confidence in it at all as a workable no right so, uh, yeah only those companies that have you know that, are, that to whom ccs represents a lifeline for their core businesses are actually holding it aloft as as a kind of investable proposition but they're not actually investing like who has who's cut a 10 billion dollar check for a ccs project nobody right they're all kind of cozying up to governments and saying, well, you know, if you could fund our front-end engineering study, then maybe in a couple of years we might be able to make a final investment decision. But, you know, maybe you can just fund the initial studies and all go 50-50. And, and it's kind of the same in, in hydrogen, particularly blue hydrogen, these hydrogen clusters that are being developed in the UK. Um, it, it's all about kind of the government's sort of covering the upfront cost of getting things to a point where they can actually decide whether to invest, while government also draws up um, kind of business uh, revenue support schemes to make in hydrogen, again, an investable proposition. Um, and uh, so we're kind of, they're kind of, um, they're, they're spinning a line almost to the capital markets to say, look, yes, don't worry, like, yes, this is all very bad. Um, our core product will become used less and less and it's, it's, it's almost uninvestable for you guys. But we've got these solutions coming and governments are kind of on the side, but but actually, like, there's so far to go before you see just these mammoth investments required for the enormous scale up in CCS and hydrogen at the volumes required to really meet or come anywhere near meeting the targets that, that governments have made. Yeah, absolutely. And Rachel, you were at COP26. So um, tell us a little bit about that. What was your kind of overriding impression of how energy was sort of represented and treated at at, at COP in Glasgow? Oh dear, um, <laughs> I don't know where to begin because there was no beginning. Um, I should say it was it was my first COP, so um, I don't have anything to compare it against. Um, I spoke to a couple of people who had been to COP before and um, I mean, they were fairly, you know, they said this was, quite typical it was quite typical in terms of how a cop would usually work um obviously very different in lots of other ways um but energy was most notable by its absence i i find it i found it genuinely shocking how little presence energy had there i mean water had a pavilion the multilateral banks had a pavilion the indigenous peoples had a pavilion finance construction 
business, you name it, everywhere had a pavilion. But I think the only energy, um, the only energy sort of stand was for nuclear. And at one point, the nuclear guys were handing out bananas to try and get people to stop and talk to them. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's incredible considering that, you know, energy is represents 75 percent of or, you know, or close enough to that of global emissions, the energy had no visible energy players had no visible presence, not even renewables. And even the big energy producers who were there were all there talking about, you know, I mean, Qatar was there talking about the World Cup, Saudi Arabia. I mean, they were talking about hydrogen, I guess. But yeah, I mean, there was no kind of cohesive energy presence. And then what emerged later was that, um, a lot of energy people were there, but they'd all gone sort of undercover. Um, and a lot of them went under the auspices of the International Emissions Trading Association, IETA. Um, so, I mean, what that meant was that a lot of these a, a lot of these discussions happened behind closed doors. Um, I was at a press conference where um, Alok Sharma, the um, COP president, uh, basically refused to answer a question about who from the fossil fuel industry was there. I mean, this whole topic has become so toxic and so um, volatile that nobody can talk about it openly anymore. And it just seems to me that that is a very, very poor state of affairs indeed. Yeah, because um, I guess if you, if you don't have transparency over the actual conversations that are going on around energy then it's very hard for people to understand the decisions that get made and these positions that get taken at the last minute about ditching coal or not ditching coal as we saw in the case of was it India and Australia I think but yeah yeah Australia really came out of that um <laughs> looking like the bad guys which um I, I don't think that they really anticipated um yeah I mean it was it, it was very very strange and I I mean, there was a lot of talk about coal, but, you know, I, I didn't sort of feel like there was any, I mean, it's this kind of leads in the, it plays into the discussion we've just been having. There's a lot of talk about coal, but there wasn't a lot of talk about what to replace coal with. And it makes you think, you know, if if you were having that kind of supply and demand discussion, you know, you're having these sort of long term strategic but conversations about long term strategic planning, it, it would be a bit easier to reach these kind of decisions. But everything at COP is so kind of compartmentalized. You know, you're talking about finance in one room, you're talking about coal phase out in another. It's, it's there's no kind of cohesion to it. I mean, as, as a first time COP attendee, I, it took me probably a good 48 hours to properly orientate myself. It was it was so arcane and so difficult to understand. Um, I I can understand how it's um, it can be very difficult to arrive, but but it, it can be confusing for people, and it just sort of adds to the whole opaqueness of it all. Hmm. Yeah. Well, don't worry. I mean, I think there's going to be many, many, many more cops, unfortunately, because so little progress is made at each of them. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, I probably won't be able to go to them. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there will be. Yeah, uh, yeah and sadly. Um, I'm just having a little look at the call list. Uh, there's nobody, nobody calling in yet. Feel free to raise your hands, hit the call button if you want to chime in and, and, uh, and, and 
take the conversation somewhere new, uh, share your thoughts or take us a task for what we're talking about. Um, until someone raises their hand, I want to talk about something else, which uh, is there was a piece in uh, there's a, uh, the, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, there's a guy called Nikos Safos who um, he he uh, writes a lot of their their gas uh, natural gas content and energy transition content. And he wrote a piece back in September, which is still really valid today. And this article, it um, it talked about uh, the energy tra uh, energy volatility that we're seeing in Europe. So uh, you know, anybody that's that's been kind of following energy markets will know that, that energy prices have gone absolutely ballistic in uh, in this side of the Atlantic. Uh, you know, we've seen natural gas prices rise five, six hundred percent since March. And that's kind of fed through into like higher carbon prices, higher coal prices because of fuel switching, and of course higher power prices because uh, gas is often the marginal um, uh, fuel source in in the power stack. And um, yeah, Nicholas Staples of the CSIS wrote this really interesting piece about the you know because because at that time in September and even now. Uh, the the European Commission and lots of other people were saying, well, you know, all of this, this natural gas volatility spike, this under uh, this kind of underscores the reason why we should be switching to, uh, to, to to you know domestically produced wind and solar and you know wave and tidal down the line, and that these should be our kind of you know stable, secure support, um, sources of primary energy, and. And uh, Nicholas Sapper was writing about how th th there's really no reason to expect energy prices to be less volatile in a, a low carbon world. Um, so he he said that you know like fossil fuels will continue to play a role in the energy transition. Um, in, in the IEA's net zero roadmap, oil and gas still provides about 20% of the world's energy in 2050. Um, a lot of the commodities um, that will be used in the energy transition will be volatile as well. Like biofuel prices fluctuate due to their link to food markets. Um, carbon prices go up and down, which is what we're seeing at the moment. Um, and <laughs> there's this point he makes about how the, the, the massive reliance on hydrogen, um, it's, it's like one of the, the kind of same points of hydrogen is that it, it, it can be stored. It's an energy vector. It allows you to, to store energy. Um, and so the whole business case for storing something rests on volatility. So you need there to be volatility in the price to make hydrogen kind of worth using. Um, and um, energy pr uh, electricity prices are very volatile because you know balancing the system is um, is is much more costly than than um, than, than other energy vectors. And um, and then the, the other thing, which I think we've talked about recently, Rachel, it's um, how climate change will stress our energy and electricity systems. So the combination of an electricity system run on intermittent energy sources like wind and solar and the demand environment that's characterized by extreme weather is bound to be volatile and produce enormous short-term stresses and strains on, on prices. Um, so yeah and it's um i think it's also worth mentioning that that's already happening and a really good case study of that is um california um which is kind of a microcosm of all of those things where um rapid decarbonization has made it very heavily dependent on um 
both wind and solar and battery storage. But at the same time, um, climate change has produced a lot of extreme weather events that has put a lot of pressure on the demand profile. Um, So I think they had a situation where wildfires took and it's also kind of affected their interconnectivity with other states as well. So um, with intermittent wind, for example, they were relying on being able to import power from um, other states, from Oregon. But the wildfires took out those power lines. So they were essentially isolated. So it's, it's a really it's a really interesting case study in how rapid decarbonisation and climate change have really put, really revealed the weaknesses in an energy system. And I mean, prices, I mean, they, they ended up having rolling blackouts, but prices are only going to be more volatile in California. Texas is another um, earlier this year. That's another very good example of um, climate change induced price volatility. Yeah, yeah, and 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 how, when when you look at that panorama of um, you know, these extreme weather events, which are, I mean, it's difficult to kind of attribute any single data point to to climate change, but there's the kind of wider trend, and you know, big caveat, I'm not a climate scientist, but I've kind of there is this kind of overwhelming narrative that suggests that. Um, you know, these extreme weather events are caused by by climate change or they're being made worse by climate change or more frequent. Um, so so when you look at that, but then you look at kind of the, the fragility that's that that's that's taking over the the, the provision of, of critical fuel sources like electricity and natural gas. How how is that going to do you think play out in, in the, the kind of political sphere in like public? public perceptions around the energy transition do you think it will it will ha- kind of accelerate things because people feel the effects of climate change in theory or or people will kind of push back because they they, they want kind of what they hope and think will be like a more secure energy system based on kind of conventional sources well it's a funny one isn't it i mean i i think that the general direction of travel is that people are starting to see the effects of climate change and it's genuinely frightening. I mean, I was reading this morning about the hundreds of fatalities in the Kentucky tornadoes. Um, and when when you're living and breathing it, it's it's hard not to it's hard not to have that. It's hard for that not to cut through. Right. Um, but on the flip side of that, I think that, mm. you know, we are living in. <laughs> You know, especially in America, we're living in uh, America's going through a stage of intense political polarization. That's also playing out in Europe. And so I think it, to a lesser or greater degree, it depends which camp you fall in, you fall into. Um, and I think that's going to play out. I mean, there's always going to be a certain amount of I think, um, you know, there's going to be straight up climate denialism. And there's going to be the sort of I mean, I have seen. um the discussion around a school of thought talking about um, how the climate denialism debate has turned into a sort of delaying thing. So, yes, we all accept that climate change is happening, but let's just stall. Um, and I think that that's going to be putting a break on things. And I think there's also just a sense that uh, I mean, I don't think politicians really know 
what to do or how to address this with the electorate as well. I mean, you and I have talked extensively about how, um, you know, energy security is a threat. I don't think we we don't seem to be having honest conversations about what a rapid transition would look like and what that means for energy security. So until that debate happens, it's very difficult to say. Yeah. Yeah. On the denialism point, um, like when I looked at the IEF report that I mentioned at the beginning of this call, when it just kind of comes out there with this, you know, we need we need billions of dollars in oil and gas. I like part of me was kind of like, is, is this like a, another piece of kind of climate denialism where, you know, you have an institution that's I mean, is it is it is it kind of been, has it been captured by fossil fuel interests and it's there just kind of putting out this very one sided piece saying, you know, yeah, we need to decarbonize how we produce oil and gas, but we still need like 50 percent more investment in oil and gas now. I mean, it, 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 but at the same time, I kind of I look at it and I think, well, if OPEC said that, then it would probably be you know, dismissed as kind of, you know, like just Sort of speaking to their what's the phrase speaking to their own book? Uh, the words escape me. But you know, they're, they're, OPEC, you kind of expect them to say that. Um, but at the IEF, it's it's a bit different because the IEF is a is a is an organisation that was actually founded to improve dialogue between um, OPEC member countries and uh, non-OPEC member countries, so energy producing countries and energy consuming countries. And they, their members include um, like the United States, and the UK, lots of European countries. So these are not, um, uh, they're not like the members are not all just kind of, you know, going to gain financially from there being a massive uptick in, in fossil fuel spending. So I, I wonder if we should kind of attach some, some, credibility to to this, this description of a kind of investment crisis and what that could mean for, for us. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that a couple of days after they uh, released that report, they then released, uh, they, well, they I think what their, um, I, I don't know what the head of the IAF, what his name is, uh, it's escaped me, but um, he gave a speech in which he called urgently for much more investment in clean technology as well. So I think it's, I think maybe it's a case of just all of the above. Um, I think also in the political sphere, uh, politicians and lawmakers generally have become very averse to picking winners. And that's certainly the case in the EU. Um, and I think that that I think that that kind of that plays into the political discourse a lot because, you know, nobody wants to say sit down and say, yeah, this is the way forward, because ultimately you could be proved wrong. And, you know, then if you put a load of taxpayers money into something and it doesn't work out or it proves far, far too expensive. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Hinkley Point in the UK is a, a good example of that. It's, you know, I, I think there's a it is quite high risk politically. So I think there's a there's a I think there's more of a case of trying to just let the market decide without and you know make these statements about investing more in oil and gas and investing more in in renewables and just hope that it all kind of shakes out it's not going to end well though is it because you know the, <laughs> no. the, the market it's it, it's made supposedly up of the, um, like rational economic actors and 
Uh, and and it's like they they're they're being fed these completely misleading con contradictory messages, which is yes, we must decarbonize and we'll be net zero by 2050. But in the meantime, whenever the fuel prices go up, then governments scramble to do whatever they can to bring it back down again. It, whether that means like begging OPEC to produce more or, you know, kind of go, turning back to domestic producers and saying, oh, you know, we kind of told you we didn't want you to produce anymore. You reckon you could kind of just do a little bit more just for a little bit and then like go away again. It's like, how how can any investment flow on a coherent basis with this kind of complete misalignment in messaging? There's just no clarity of where we're going. Yeah, yeah. I did I did have a, a chuckle at the older OPEC pleading. <laughs> just, it's okay for other people to invest in oil and gas. Yeah, which is just like kind of I don't know that's that Western politics in a nutshell. It's just let's export the problem. You know, it's there, and they're the dirty ones, and we're yeah. all kind of very clean. And you know, it's yeah, you can understand why kind of oil and gas producers in the US might be just kind of standing there, throwing their hands in the air, saying, "Well, hello, you know, <laughs> we can we can kind of help with the problem," you know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, we've been rabbiting on, and nobody's put their hands up. But I'm glad to see that um, a bunch of people have kind of stayed the course and listened in. So, so thank you to everybody. Did you want to have anything else, anything else in your mind, Rachel, to share before we before we hang it up? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that's more or less everything for now. Nuclear bananas. I'm, I remember that one. That's a good one. Nuclear bananas. <laughs> it's the right colour. <laughs> right colour for fruit. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Brilliant. Um, well, Rachel, thank you so much for, for joining us on this pod. It's been really fun. And um, yeah, and tune in this time next week, hopefully for another episode of the pod. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. Bye.